Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Let's go. Uh, today on the news, we're going to talk about the fade out. Uh, William Weir writes in Slate Magazine, the, the technique of ending a song with a slow decrease in volume over the last few seconds became common in the 1950s, ruled for three decades, but now he sees it in decline. The year-end top ten list for 2011, 2012, and 2013 yield a total of one fade-out, Robin Thicke's purposely retro blurred lines. Not since the 50s have we had such a paucity of fade-out songs. Uh, so writes William Weir. We'll be talking about that and two other topics today on the nose. We'll be talking uh, about whether GoPro cameras and other kinds of network lenses are kind of almost distorting our notion of memory and reality. Everything has to be uh, captured. We are cameras, and the record is the point of everything. We'll also be talking about disfluencies, especially us and um, and where they fall geographically, perhaps also on the gender scale. Uh, who are our guests? Carolyn Payne is an actress, dancer, comedian, and dance impresario. She has spent the last three months in an isolated location in the Adirondacks, teaching the future of Miss America how to sing and clap and smack a red plastic cup. I guess this weekend it was all worth it, right? Except you couldn't really hear, hear the, the plastic cup being smacked. Why did they put a backing track on it that? It doesn't really make any sense, <laughs> does it? Rand Cooper is a short story writer, novelist, and food critic. He spent the last three months as a substitute guard at Buckingham Palace, where his repertoire of pirouettes and silly walks caused him to be court-martialed with extreme prejudice. But the videos that remain are, you'll be immortal for those, right? I will be. And Irene Papoulis. Well, what can you say about Irene Papoulis that is not summed up, Betsy, get ready, that is not summed up in her own vocal expression of how she handles her relationship with fellow nose panelist Luis Figueroa? Betsy? All right, so that is not exactly not actually Irene Papoulis singing. It is Bobby Martin, but that's an example of the slow fade, and it was very popular in the 1960s, which is when that song was released. It is one of the least favorite songs in Rand Cooper's musical. It's the worst pop song ever. It is not. It's it's, it's a very nice song, actually. It's uh, I actually as a young boy. It struck me as a as a very optimistic expression of what love might be. It turned out to be not true, but I mean, uh, an yeah, optimistic if, expression of what love. Did you listen to the song, Irene? <laughs> yes, I did. And and the line it, it opens with um, when he opens the door, says, "I'm home." Be aware of the look in his eyes. 
They tell you the mood he's in, what kind of day it's been. <laughs> well, what is wrong with that? <laughs> we, anyway, we, well, can't, we can't sit here yeah. debating the, uh, the merits of that particular song. The, que- the real issue is that that's the fade, the fade out. Uh, and, and so that was very much the way songs were in the 60s, 70s, 80s. William Weir, I think it's the same William Weir who also writes for the Hartford Current, but writing in Slate magazine, he's kind of touched off a national conversation too. There's been other articles about it since then, about what's going on uh, now that we don't have so many fade outs anymore. And, 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 and what does this mean? Is this a sort of a, a change in fashion? Does it have something to do with iPods? Is it another thing we can somehow blame on millennials? As we know, I try to blame everything on millennials if <laughs> I possibly can. Uh, are you a millennial? Are you technically a millennial? I am technically really? a cusp, yes. Yeah, you seem like a cusp. You seem yeah, like a cusp. Yeah, I'm right on the cusp. You're, you're not a real millennial. You've been, you've, used, you've been inside a bank, right? You haven't always only ever used ATMs? Yeah, that's true. Okay, I have you're been not, in a bank. No, but you have a lot of millennial qualities, though. All right. I yeah. So, 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 who's got a, who's got a working hypothesis that they? One th- one idea I thought I suggested, and that I think got, prompted Rand to select that particular song, which he regards as so cheesy, mm-hmm. is that there's something inherently cheesy and lazy about the fade out. But I'm not. It doesn't really hold true universally or perfectly, now, does it? You know, in this conversation, which is taking place mostly this morning, was started yesterday. I find I've gone through several phases, uh, vis-a-vis the fade out. Uh, uh, first of all. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it. It's one of those, at, at first, it's one of those sort of formal rules that was, that was so pervasive in the pop music of my childhood that you didn't even consider it a musical or aesthetic option. It's simply the way songs ended. You're listening to a song on the radio, and it would just sort of gradually fade away. And so I was kind of shocked. And somebody would say, that was Bobby Martin. Right. <laughs> that was Bobby Martin. Martin. For the love of him, so going up I, on our hit sweep. I, I, I was shocked to see that there was actually a graph that showed uh, how steep the decline in the fade-out has been. So one question I would have, I'm, I'm not sure it was in this article, but maybe someone who read it more closely than, than I did would be able to say, is there some purely, merely technological change behind this? Was there, is it sort of different toys create a, you know, did something happen in the 70s that that made the fade in that way technologically um, uh, sort of prominent that that has changed? Or is this just a pure sort of culture of music change? Well, a number of technological explanations, at least for the arrival of the fade, really more in the 50s and early 60s, were posited in that article. And then I've read, read other articles since then that have a, like, all kinds of producers and arrangers and people like that positing other technological explanations, which makes me think it's not really – at least why it's fading is not a technological explanation. But I, I see some rustling over there well, in the well, Papoulis corner. Let me put one hypothesis you yeah. asked for one. There might be a performance-based hypothesis. One of the problems – back in the 60s and 70s, you were much more likely to be listening to a song on the radio than watching someone perform it, either live or on television or on on YouTube, which didn't exist. And when you had a favorite song that ended in a fade, and then you saw someone perform it, you know, on the Ed Sullivan Show or American Bands or something, there was always this awkward question, how are they going to do the fade? Mm. Because the fade is really a gradual turn down the volume. So is the singer just going to sit there and sort of sing a little bit more quietly, and then a little bit more quietly? And often I found, you know, as a 10 or 11 year old watching TV, I had this little bit of formal curiosity. How would they do the fade? And sometimes the singer sort of sat there awkwardly, you know, mouthing it over and over again, but looking tamer and tamer each time. (laughs) Other times they would improvise a cold ending that is not a fade that just made it easier for them. So I'm wondering if the 
the increase in sort of performative aspects of our exposure to music makes the fade, which was inherently awkward for a performer, less and less popular. Uh, before I go to Irene Vavoulos on this, our number, 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266 if you have thoughts about uh, musical fade-outs. It really is one of the, I thought I'd... I've, I think so much about musical topics, and I agree. I just until reading this article, I never really thought one way or another about the fade out and what it means and 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 what its prevalence is. But but Irene, uh, do you yeah. have a working hypothesis? Yeah. Well, um, uh, I think it's interesting too the way once we once we learn for those of us who are a little bit bit older, once we learn that something has changed from what we remember from our past, we we immediately, or at least I do, get nostalgic for it and think, wait a minute, wait a minute, we shouldn't get rid of those fade outs. We need them, but why do we really need them? You know. But my hypothesis, you know, has to do with so DJs used to do that, you know, from going from one song to the next, probably I think on the radio as well as, you know, in any kind of dance situation, one song goes out and the other song goes in. Now they can mush together technologically much more easily, you know. But I think it also, you know, there's something about contemplation that we have so little of lately and that I think there's something about the fade out that lets you just kind of take a minute that you wouldn't take if the song lasted through that fade-out time. So it's not a matter of time. It's just kind of that moment of sort of letting the song fade in your mind so that you appreciate it or somehow, you know, just, just acknowledge its presence and, its, and the fact that it's leaving, you know, that we don't like to do that anymore. We like, it seems to me, that we don't like to contemplate things. We just like to go on to the next one really fast. Well, it's, it's those damn millennials. But let me just, be, damn before, before I say that, uh, before I go to one of those damn millennials about this, <laughs> um, David Huron of the School of Music and Center for Cognitive and Brain Sciences at Ohio University uh, in uh, Ware's article had a different interpretation or a similar one to Irene's where the fade out music manages to delay closure indefinitely. The stop gesture is replaced by a gesture toward the infinite. You know, it just sort of keeps going. Things don't uh, have to end. We don't want them to end. End is death. So it just keeps going a little bit more and a little bit more. And maybe there is room there for contemplation and transcendental meditation. <laughs> but you damn millennials. Well, one thing you damn millennials do is you listen uh, on those newfangled iPods. And, and, and iPods do make switching from song to song very easy. So if a song is winding down, why continue to listen to it? There's something great uh, coming up there on the click wheel. Is, is that it, Carolyn? Maybe. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't ever put any thought into, <laughs> <laughs> into this at all. So when this came up as a topic, uh, I, I, Rand was like, I'm going to go through songs and see what, you know. What, <laughs> and, and, of course, you know, the songs you were referencing I had never heard of because I'm a millennial. <laughs> no, but I went through some of my favorite songs from, you know, from like the 80s, the 90s, and today. And I did notice that pop songs today do have cold endings. And that songs that, you know, that were from from the 80s even did tend to do more of the fade out. And for me, this made me think that even though I thought I had paid no attention to this, I did realize that as a choreographer, I had been paying attention to this for a long time. Because when I would look for music, especially if I was using more contemporary music, I wanted songs that had an ending. Because when you're choreographing, you want to finish with a bang. You don't want to just have it trickle out. That's not a successful choreography tactic. So I found that I was thinking about it kind of subconsciously and for another purpose, but not in listening. And definitely with with your iPod, you know, listening to things on shuffle, you're kind of your own DJ, but you don't, when you put it, I'm my, my favorite thing is shuffle on the iPod. So I kind of like the surprise of what's coming up next. I like the song to end and, you know, transition on to whatever else comes. And so, you don't like to, it to fade out? 
Um, you know, I, I don't think I ever, like I said, I never put too much stock into it. Um, sometimes I find that fade out to just kind of be almost annoying. It's sort of just like this little crawl towards the end. I I think I like a big finish. Rush to the next thing, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, of course, the fade out has been used lots of different ways. And uh, Bill Weir uh, talks about this, how it's been used to cover up mistakes. uh, And it's also used sometimes for singers to kind of improvise wildly at the end of something. I mean, some songs, you know, I went to see Steely Dan uh, this, uh, on Tuesday night in, in Wallingford, uh, and I was reminded of the fact that even though they're musical snobs and very acting, exacting musicians, most of their songs, especially their hits, do fade. They, they often fade over really interesting solos, though. Mm-hmm. Somebody, somebody's playing a great sax at the end of Deacon Blues, but the chorus is just Th- There's a fade quality often to an entirety of a Steely Dan song. It's, <laughs> as, if, it's as if it's fading, you know, from, from the get-go. But in concert, and did th- they do it? Did no, they they, do they it? come up because very, very their, their concerts are so much uh, an acknowledgement. If had we about world and time, I would give you my whole uh, Steely Dan theory. But their <laughs> their concerts are uh, very much an acknowledgement that you know what they always wanted to be was basically Duke Ellington, but born in 1948. Uh, and so now they're trying to be the Duke Ellington band. Uh, if he, Duke Ellington had grown up listening to to Dylan and and. Uh, Chuck Berry. So. Colin, you pointed out, and I think it is a good point if, if, if we're going to continue to talk about this, that there are different kinds of fade-outs. And some are the lame, really the lame kind, standard 70s, in which the refrain simply repeats over and over again and the volume goes down. Nothing's really happening. But other uh, pop songs use the fade more creatively. You mentioned Stevie Wonder, and you said that he was sort of an interesting lab. We can, uh, we can actually give you some lab examples here. Let's, let's listen to Stevie. This is back in his Motown era, where, in fact, he had a little bit less control over how things... Uh, got rolled out. Uh, And so here's Stevie Wonder doing a fade on I Was Made to Love Her. And just for contrast, and then we'll go back to Rand's thought, uh, we'll, we'll listen to Stevie Wonder. This is more, this is the, the song, it's, it's the, the tail end of this uh, hybrid song he does in, on the, on the uh, release Music of My Mind when he really kind of had seized control of all aspects of his creative identity. And what you want to listen to here, the song is called Where Were You? It's the second half of the song that begins as, as Superwoman. Uh, one of the things that Stevie started to do, and I found lots of songs where he did it, was to do something that sounded like it was going to be a fade and then really make a choice about how to end it. So you'll hear uh, towards the end of this some beautiful uh, guitar playing. I think it's by Dean Parks. It, it seems like it's about to sort of come down uh, into one of those fades, and then it doesn't. So here's Where Were You.
Now, there is a little fade there as he goes, dun, 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 dun. But basically, he's taken the chorus all the way to the end and thought, no, I've actually got a way of kind of landing this song. Here's I always thought it was like the it. doorbell ringing and she, she got there. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, like, it's like a semi-fade, but interesting things continue to happen, mm. although in miniature. And they keep you listening, actually with more attention and more avidity as it shrinks mm-hmm. away. I, I find with a lot of Stevie Wonder songs, something like that happens. Even, even the first one you, that you did, which was pretty standard fade, mm-hmm. but the bass line continued sort of at the same volume and, and the other elements were brought down, so you have this emerging bass line that came out of it. That was interesting to me. His song Golden Lady, <laughs> to me, which does have a form of a fade, it, it repeats over and over again, but there's this continual key change in the in the in the refrain that's repeating and it and it climbs and comes back down and climbs again and you get this effect even as the sound diminishes of this mounting jubilation and so there's a, there's a jubilant fade that Stevie Wonder can do he's really creative in the way that he uses this uh, the, this form um, let's go to the English professor for a second and just think about whether or not this is some kind of extendable metaphor. Um, and so one of the things that uh, Betsy Kaplan uh, wondered about is whether it, there, it tracks at all with sort of notions of how to end relationships. There is such a thing as a slow fade in relationships. I might <laughs> save that one for Carolyn. I feel like Carolyn may have something to say about that. But, you know, there's a, the thing that I was thinking about, too, is there's, there's a, an expression – that sometimes is called Irish leave or something like that or the Irish exit or something like that, which is that maybe people of my ethnicity are sometimes – will sometimes leave a party without saying goodbye, <laughs> you know. And, and, and it, it's because we don't really know how to end anything. We don't really want to – we don't really want to have the conversation. Uh, I'm sure it's not restricted to our ethnicity. But, you know, there's – my friend Peter Shapiro, who I happen to have coffee with this morning, used to tell me all the time that how you leave – Anything, you know, a, a, a meeting you had, a cup of coffee you had with somebody, a relationship is really important and people underestimate departures. Um, and I think that's kind of an interesting point and in, in that, you know, people who make – who choose an ending for a song as opposed to just fading down what's been happening are, are – they're, they're kind of doing that. They're kind of, they're kind of saying, yes, I, now I'm going to leave you. Here's the note, the literal note I'm going to leave you on. Yeah. Well, um so I started. I, I discovered, thinking about this topic, that there's a there's a psychological concept called need for closure, and there's a scale at which they um, evaluate people based on that uh, on that need for closure. Some people are way on one end. Some people are way, you know, in in the sense that they just want to know everything. You know, is it or are we in a relationship or not? Let's just decide and let's really fix it or anything else. Uh, and on the other end are people that really have sort of almost, or not almost, have a lot of anxiety about closure. You know, they always want to leave lots of options open. So I think that's a really interesting concept and an interesting continuum. And I uh, like to go through all my friends in my mind and think, who needs closure and who doesn't need closure? And how about on this panel? How about Caroline? She kind of, you know, and... Um, <laughs> But I think, yeah, absolutely. I, I, that's why I was interested in that, um, the blog from Salon, from the Double X blog article, um, that in which the, the author was talking about text, first of all, talking about texting to break up with someone, which oh. to me just seems <laughs> a bizarre. Is that a millennial concept, texting to break I up? I was broken up with twice this year via Facebook. I mean, yeah. it was a private Facebook message, which I, <laughs> but <laughs> twice this year. It's better that Mark Sanford broke up with yeah. somebody uh, with a, you know, 12,000 <laughs> word or 2,000 word post on Facebook. I, I suppose. <laughs> you, you know, the, when, when marriages break up, 
the, the effects, uh, the instrumentation is so symphonic that you, you really <laughs> would have to be talking about Wagner. Um, so the, the pop music fade metaphor might, might actually be more useful to think of in terms of friendships. And or dating. Or, or, yeah. or dating. You know, that, that if you look at the, the waxing and waning of friendships or, or dating relationships, you know, I mean, dating, that's just so long ago in my life that I, I don't remember it anymore. But uh, the way friendships, sometimes friendships, they do just have a sort of slow fade. And that consists of the same refrains in the relationship sort of repeating over and over again, <laughs> but, <laughs> but more quietly and less often. And then, uh, and then other relationships do have a, have a you know, a, a cold snap, crisp, clear. But, ending. I mean, I think it's interesting to think, I mean, the, the, the point that the, that uh, article made is that if you, if, if, if he's not answering your texts, the relationship's over. So why do you have to, why does he have to tell you, the, you know, the relationship is over? Um, which is an interesting point, I guess, especially if you're just, da- if you've just dated someone once or twice. But. I, th- I think there's something about it. Igno- it's the same thing with the fade in a way, um, because I think if you acknowledge some kind of closure, it's it's it, it kind of does justice to it or honors it in some way. Well, those damn millennials. No, I don't. <laughs> but you know, I do feel that there's a generational thing. Sometimes you may correct me if this seems like a uh, an unfair, uh, you know, broad brush evisceration of an entire generation of daters. I'm sure it is uh, exactly that. But a sense of like, well, when exactly is anybody dating anyway? Mm. You know, is this a real relationship? Are we just going out? Are we it just sleeping confusing. together? It is confusing. I'm yeah. confused most of the time so when I'm so seeing you... someone. I don't. I'm like, are we dating? Is this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I. I honestly don't know half yeah. the time if I'm in a relationship. And so is there, are you so, reluctant to talk about it? Yeah, with the person? and then I is think it why? makes, you know, it makes putting closure on something even more confusing, especially if in your mind you're seeing it as kind of a relationship and maybe he was seeing it as just something that was happening. I... I <laughs> <laughs> a booty call. Yeah. Uh, but, but, so oh, so you're, what you're saying horrible. is that the, the protocol, therefore, is blurred, right? There, it is. There isn't an, I mean, with some relationships, there's an obvious protocol. It's like, you want to get out of this relationship, you're going to have to have the talk, capital T, capital D, with me. Oh, you're not walking away from this without having the talk, and it's going to be face-to-face. And But if you're... If the, well, apparently, if the, yeah, if, in the case of the, the Facebook breakup for me, that this guy was just trying to literally just do a nice slow fade, yeah. and then, you know, I wasn't picking up on it and I or I wanted answers and he's like well look the problem is you're too confrontational and I <laughs> he just didn't want to confront me um, for fear In, that I would including about breaking up apparently. yeah yeah you know, apparently. The, thing, the thing that was his big problem with you also interfered with his ability <laughs> to break up yeah with you. translate that you actually have an emotional reality that you want to talk about I could know, do right? one I could do one whole show a week on Carolyn's life I swear <laughs> to God I have I a I have a good song yeah. for that <laughs> which way you going Billy can I go to that has a long slow face of the bad kind, of the cheesy kind. All right. Let's uh, grab a call here from Alex. We do have to move on to other things. Here's uh, Alex and Vernon. Hi, Alex. Hey, how's it going? It's fine. What's on your uh, mind? Uh, well, you know, I, I was having a very similar conversation with a, uh, a, a producer friend of mine a few weeks ago about uh, the shift and even the, the types of faith when you, when you looked at music from the, the early 60s. And it would be a really short, quick fade at the end, and then the song was over. Um, and, and kind of how it progressed into you look at some of the power ballads and it's this really, you know, long, drawn-out kind, of, uh, kind of a statement, you know, for the, the song ending and, and, and this whole thing coming to an end. And uh, it's, it's kind of been my thought that when you saw a shift in uh, production style and in, in what people were listening to from, 
the really you know polished studio recordings to uh, if if you take this the, the you know at least rock and roll kind of music from the late 80s and early 90s and it was becoming a lot more raw and uh, and a lot more like what you would see live you know what you would see the band doing live and they would be tracking the songs in these uh, these these larger live rooms and they would just end the song I mean you can't you can't really try and do the, the fade live. I, I think you guys were talking about that earlier uh, on television when some of the singers or artists would be kind of, you know, floundering or, or kind of standing around and it would be this awkward, you know, period there. And, and live, it's not any better, you know, in front of a, a, an audience. And, and especially you, you kind of lose a lot of the emotion. Um, Alex, great point, uh, and thank you. Thank you for that. Um, we're going to have to end this topic. I just actually have to keep us with a nose. I have to be a stern taskmaster. I have to move things along. We're going to go to the next segment. Uh, we are going to end either with Stevie Wonder doing another fade, which will make um, Irene Papoulos get up and dance, and possibly <laughs> Carolyn as well, uh, or the Beatles rejecting the notion of the fade. Betsy Kaplan is going to choose, and her choice will speak volumes about who she really is. <laughs> Here we come. We are back. All right. So um, we're going to talk right now about, uh, well, some of our thoughts here are triggered by an article in The Current. I think it's still the current issue of The New Yorker. Uh, it's uh, by Nick Palmgarten. It's about um, the GoPro, life uh, with the GoPro. The GoPro camera is something that can be mounted on you and take pictures of, uh, take video of everything that you're doing uh, and how people now do things just so they can create GoPro records of them. Uh, he writes, when the agony of missing the shot trumps the joy of the experience worth shooting, the adventure athlete, climber, surfer, extreme skier reveals himself to be something else, a filmmaker, a brand, a vessel for the creation of content. Now the purpose of the trip or trick is the record of it. Life is footage. Uh, footage. So, um, and this it's a very interesting article. It's I don't know if people have uh, experienced GoPro cameras, and I think they're just a subset of this much larger phenomenon of so-called networked lenses. The fact that everywhere that you go, including steely dance concerts, where this is very frowned upon, people will just want to like hold up the phone in their hand and make this record. They're barely even paying attention to the concert that they paid a lot of money to go to. They just want to make this uh, record and, and share on Facebook the fact that they were they were there, even though they weren't listening, they were fussing with their uh, actual phone. But um, but the GoPro is a little bit more than that, because it really is, I mean, you know, I Am a Camera is uh, an old movie title, but um, it's... It, 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 you are kind of really a camera in this situation. Irene, you were uh, disconcerted by this article. Yeah, probably because, um, you know, of this. Uh, I don't think it's it's a little bit more than that. And, it, you know, another step away from the mystical transcendent that I that I like so much that I've been advocating for today. 
uh, because you're you're not in the experience, you know. I mean, and and also the the thought that my students are going to be doing that in my class with me, and they're going to be, you know, or that your taking son, it out your of, son is going to be base jumping off the Harkness <laughs> Tower at Yale, yeah, with his, with, <laughs> with his GoPro camera on just his helmet, just to show, yeah, just to show, just to put the video on his Facebook page, you know, yeah. Uh, so it just it feels like another step towards. I mean, it, there's. Dave Eggers' novel, The Circle, uh, is just stayed. I don't think it's a great novel, but it's a great concept. And it's sort of a dystopian world in which, you know, transparency is something that people have a goal to, uh, of, you know, which is just to make everybody, all your watchers, all your Facebook friends watch your entire day, you know. And I just find that completely horrifying. It, it's a big trend. I actually Get up on the microphone. have a friend who recently confessed to the fact that she will buy something like food or you know, clothing or something just to Instagram it. She'll like, if there's like a pretty cupcake, she's like, oh, I bought it just because I want to take a cool Instagram. That's horrifying. But the, and so the GoPro, GoPro camera, I, I get like if you are skydiving and you want to film this and it'll, you know, that's going to be very cool footage and it's kind of this, you know, first person view of something that some of us will never experience. Like I am certainly never skydiving. <laughs> so I would watch somebody's footage of it on GoPro, but I don't need to watch everyone's footage of it. My mm. thing with GoPro, the first time I have seen these in action was this summer I was running a 5K and there was a guy who had a GoPro on his forehead. What are you filming at a 5K? Mm. Like this is like just over three miles. Like it's not that, you know, it's not that impressive. Like You don't need a, and the GoPro is not filming necessarily, what they're filming is the person the people in front of them, they're filming strangers from behind running. That's what they're getting you in know, this Mike, shot. Mike Ditka used to have a sign on his desk that said, if you ain't the lead dog, the view never changes. <laughs> and that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, that's like wow. all there is to I, – I will – and I'll give you sort of a, an echo of that. Last summer, uh, I was uh, on – I didn't talk about this too much probably, but on this tandem bike ride across Europe uh, from, uh, from, from Paris to Amsterdam uh, on tandem bikes. And I was doing this for a magazine article. Uh, and so uh, Steve Lashiver – now, I did ask Rand if he wanted to do this with me. But anyway, Steve Lashover, this uh, wonderful photographer, was uh, sitting in the back seat of the tandem. And he's got all kinds of photo equipment, including a GoPro, which he mounts on his bicycle helmet. Uh, and there was at least one other rider in this group of 80 tandem riders who was also a back rider, what's called a stoker, uh, in, in the second seat, also with a GoPro on her helmet. Well, the problem there is the same problem that Carolyn's describing, which is that a lot of your footage would be of my back. Um, so they solved this. Think about this now. They solved this when they were really interested in messing around with them, both of them, because sometimes we would be uh, – the two bikes would be side by side and we would be doing these kind of air fights, these dog fights with our, our GoPro cameras. The, the two riders solved this by removing their helmets that had the GoPro cameras so they could sort of aim their helmets at various things, you know, and, and aim their helmets around the backs of the people sitting in front of them. So now they're exposing themselves to concussions and brain <laughs> fractures and, and things like that so that they can uh, mess around with their GoPro. Pro cameras. But so, Rand, you'll get the final word on this. Well, the first thing I would do is recommend that people read this article because it's very, it's very well written and it's yeah. thoughtful. Uh, Nick Palmgarten makes he makes one good point in favor of these cameras and really one larger point against. What I responded to favorably. There's a part of the article where he describes having mounted a GoPro camera on his son's skiing helmet, and how when he watched the footage that was created, he had this sense of being of seeing the world 
as his son was seeing it. He makes a cool distinction between the selfies that are now ubiquitous when we take photos of ourselves with stuff in the background and this camera, which really does the opposite. It's a point of view camera. He says we could call these worldies, not selfies, but worldies, (laughs) because it shows us the world as the bearer of the camera is seeing it. And that sense that you would suddenly be transported sympathetically into someone else's point of view is a great argument on behalf of this camera. Now, the big argument against it is that we're no longer living, we're we're now uh, living experience at a remove into which is built this necessity to produce experience and purvey it. And that that is somehow going to, in some way that Irene's very suspicious of, separate us from a sort of immediate and authentic kind of living. I will just say I approach that topic with some hesitation because writers do that all the time. The late novelist, I think John Gardner, told a a story about how once he was uh, driving a car and he came to a place, an intersection, there had been a car accident. And uh, a car was smashed up and there were people in the car. And as he ran to help, he was thinking at the same time and hating himself for thinking this, what, what, how would I write, how will I write this? Where will this come up? What will I do with this? There, uh, there is for writers, and I just finished, I'm going to talk about this in my endorsement, an, uh, a biography of John Updike. Here was a person who was so driven to, tra- to translate his life into usable and indeed sellable narrative that it often happened like the next day. <laughs> so in a way, GoPro has turned everyone into that kind of voracious novelist who's creating narrative. A and filmmaker. there are things gained yeah. and maybe things lost. Well, and I do think we are going to – Betsy Kaplan wants to do a whole show about this and I I think she's right because the other part of it, the other part of what Rand's saying is we know from all kinds of research, I think it's Elizabeth Loftus who's done a lot of the research on this, that we construct memories inaccurately, right? That, you know, that that most of our memories are these kinds of pastiches of what we think happened and what did happen and just a very unreliable mechanism. And now more and more there are questions about how fungible is this story? Is there actually some kind of video record of it, you know? Can I just tell it the way I want to? Or And I find myself also – I mean I catch myself these days going thinking, is this one of these things where I'll be able to rewind something and actually sort of pay a little bit more attention and figure out what happened? Or am I just living in the moment right now and it, it's flying by? Which is this? Because there are so many things that are now rewindable and recoverable. That I think we're, we have two states of attention now probably. But even on those, you can't you – know, it depends the, on, the, on when you turn the camera on or off. And the, the, and the there point be, of view. You, you, the yeah, literal the point, point of view. Yeah. So uh, – all right, we have to move on because uh, we have one more topic here, and I guarantee you that people will call up about this. How they will speak when they call up is an entire uh, different question. So uh, the, this all, all has to do with disfluencies. I think I was just on the verge of doing one, uh, also called discourse particles. Um, if you remember, if those of you who remember Fireside Theater, and uh, there's all you know, we're all bozos on this bus. There's a great scene at the beginning where uh, the prime primary character. His name is Clem. He re- arrives at some kind of amusement park or something, and there's a kind of speaking post into which you're supposed to say your name. And he says, uh, Clem. And for the rest of the time that he's there, he's identified as uh, Clem, and there are these announcements. So, well, Mr. Uh, Clem, please come to the – so disfluencies can stay with you for a long time. Uh, you could argue that JFK killed the hat but uh, rebirthed the disfluency. I mean JFK was uh, – he was uh, famous for uh, putting this certain kind of uh, punctuation into what he talked about. So uh, we did look at this article, uh, which they really badly screwed up at first, in which a couple of forensic linguists look at, looked at the way uh, – and um turn up on Twitter. Now, Twitter isn't really authentic American language, but they argue, well, it's close enough. It's, it's the best place you're going to have a huge, huge data sample. And then they tried to divide up at least the United States geographically into 
the uhs versus ums. And the way I would sum up the map is that uh lives in the heartland from Texas to the Great Lakes basically and kind of spreading out like uh, spilled milk uh, around there. Um lives on the eastern seaboard and of course everybody moves to California and Nevada. So out there in the west, it's all mixed up. There's uhs, there's ums. It's whatever uh, you took with you from wherever you left. So, But it got us thinking about a lot of different aspects of uhs and ums and disfluencies uh, and, and the meanings that they have and whether they're really as bad. Now, Carolyn, you were actually raised by uh and um tiger moms and dads, right? You yes. were spanked uh, and locked in closets. Uh, <laughs> horribly, horribly, if, horribly really, treated but they, that, that was drummed out of you, right? Yes. My parents used to yell at us if we used uh and um when answering questions or talking at dinner because it made you sound like a liar or not confident or worse, both. So they trained us to feel that using either of those just was horrible. And I I feel I use them less or I'm very careful to try to – I hate myself when I hear – when if I ever listen to the show or hear myself using them, I'm like, oh, you used an uh or an um. But there, as Rand pointed out, there are other – I'll use the word like a lot, which I think is, again, sort of a age group thing. I'll blame that on my age group. (laughs) But my parents were very careful to train those out. And I think it's interesting because now I have that reaction when someone is using a lot of uh, uh, um, uh, I just immediately assume that they are lying to me. The line is another possibility. Well, but, I, I mean, know. <laughs> but, Rand, you made some very interesting points as we were emailing, including the fact that there's something naturalistic about us and ums. Um, tell us about the presidential candidate. Thing. I think that's a great story. Well, I, I think, um, <laughs> <laughs> first of all, becoming self-conscious about the language you're using as you use it is right. a particular form of intellectual torment. <laughs> and, and we're all going to be necessarily subject to that for the rest of this show. But it did, it did occur yeah. to me to think – I tried to think of the people I've known in my life whose sentences parse most perfectly and contain the least amount of gunk. And I, I came up with a couple. One professor of mine in college and he spoke with an almost eerie perfection. And, uh, and it occurred to me to think that if someone speaks really without tossing any of this junk in – you, you, you're, it's almost a little bit unsettling. Either the person is sort of a control freak or or possesses a level of intelligence that he or she can just, just casually toss off perfect sentences without any hesitations, which is also scary. Uh, so anyway, I recalled reading an article that some linguists had analyzed all of the presidential candidates and their public utterances of the past 50 years to see who was the most perfectly grammatical, whose syntax was the least cluttered. And they came up with the best, most perfect speaker of English of all of our candidates the past 50 years was Michael Dukakis. <laughs> so it, it, it suggests that uh, speaking cleanly, speaking without the sort of garbage particles that actually endear you to your fellow Americans is not a recipe for winning. Although Obama does, uh, has always done a fair number of uhs and ums. I saw and you story. knows. He's a huge you know. He does a little sotto voce. Uh, the situation that's in a, Western. That's, you know. a, that's a whole other show. Though. Yeah. Uh, by the way, if you want to talk about uhs and ums, 860-275-7266. Uh, you have to declare your preference. 860-275-7266. Irene, you are such a perfect summation demographically of what you should be. You're an East Coast person and you're a woman, women, women favor ums over, uh, over us. And in fact, you are an ummer. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> yes, I'm an ummer. I admit it. Um, 
<laughs> I immediately and don't actually, trust you. I have to I have to say, and it seems like somebody has to say that Rand, you are often seen as somebody who can toss off those perfect sentences without any kind of ums or uhs in the middle of it. You know, so it's interesting that you don't see yourself that way, or you would marvel or remark on people on somebody else that was seen that way. I mean, it's hard to listen guy, to yourself as you're speaking. Right. Yeah, but that well, that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so see, I said it again. I I realized I said it because when I first they they made a mistake in the article and they and they switched around and I I convinced myself that I was an a uh person since I'm from the East Coast. But then I found out I was. My friend said, "No, you're an um person." Colin is definitely an a uh person. I am an uh, I am an um person. Uh, but it, so, but, but, okay. but I, well, I want to hear what you're you're about to say. But I just want to point out one thing about your um. You used an um the way I think people are supposed to use an um. You it's to pause and organize your thoughts. That's exactly the way you used. Your um just now, that you were about to switch off from your take on Rand to something else. So you'd really kind of touch the pause button for a second with an um so that you could gather yourself up for your next point. It's like a little bit of Muzak as we wait for the appointment to be fulfilled. (laughs) Slow fade of my first point, yeah. Uh, um, uh, uh, Well, you know, I think... Uh, somewhere in one of these articles I read about David Spade and and the and the um as a condescending uh, comment say, that I think is great the snarkish <laughs> um hello condescent- we talked uh, about that yesterday right. yes. you know or so something like that so sarcastic yeah sort of yeah patronizing and this the article touches upon that especially because this is Twitter so these are written ums and ahs and they are more often than not I suspect on Twitter being used in that. Um, what's this about? Or, you know, in that, that this the snark, the making a point of I think they referenced somebody talking about the iPhone watch. Uh, so this is a watch. So we um, wear it. You know, <laughs> it's, it's hard to imagine. When I was a child, we, we traveled a few times to Canada and there for the first time we encountered a, yeah, yeah. a, a. And and to us, that was an, an exotic uh, romantic and highly attractive speech tick. And it's hard to imagine anyone feeling that way about um and, and uh. I mean, I certainly appreciate that Irene <laughs> takes a moment to organize her thoughts and, and we all benefit from that. But, uh, but I, 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 for years uh, I thought, oh, that Canadian A, A was, was, was such the, a lovely thing. Well, and then how about the French er, er, you know, uh, and I mean, uh, then you could start uh, the, or, or the... That's right, the French or, You uh, know, Spanish uh, A... A and apparently a. there's an um in German, A H M in German. I don't um, think, can, um, can you can um, confirm that? Confirm that. Well, yeah, and I do think I want I want to say one thing about Canadians, and I'm heading for Canada tomorrow morning <laughs> um, to uh, Quebec City and to Montreal. And but uh, in the middle of Canada. Canadians use A a little bit differently. It's kind of like they use it the way some people will use ketchup. They just put it on everything. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I was with some Canadian fishing guides when a snake was trying to get in our boat from out of the water. A swimming snake was trying to get uh, into our boat from the water, which, you know, is an alarming thing if you're fishing. Like, why does the snake even want to be in the boat? You know, why does it want to be in the like water? Like the rabbit that attacked Jimmy Carter. Yes, exactly. Like this. And the Canadian fishing guides were going, eh, eh. <laughs> and it wasn't like they didn't know what to say or they were trying to think of some Papoulian mot juste about this. It was just that that's what they say about everything. They say, eh. You know, that's a placeholder for there's a snake trying to get in our boat. Rand accused me of overusing placeholder earlier this week. I think I'm going to be glad I did that. Uh, from our favorite, uh, from our signature words conversation of last week. All right, we've got a call or two, and then we're going to have to move on. Here's Rick in Chaplin, which is almost like being in Canada. Hi, Rick. Hey, Colin. Good to, good show. Um, 
something that's been driving me crazy lately is you hear in conversation or like an interviewer, I even heard this on NPR, interviewer saying, right? And it's almost like a subconscious tool of persuasion. So they're trying to make a point and they'll sneak in this little right. Have you noticed that? It is. This is a new locution. I'm I'm aware of it. I've started doing it myself. I oh, know where right. I got it yeah. from. Where it's highly it infectious because my eight year old daughter has just in the past six months begun saying that was really funny, right? Yeah. Uh, and and I, I've picked it up from a lot of my speech takes come from listening to Slate Culture Gabfest and Steve and Metcalf and some of the other people on that show have become, to me anyway, they pioneered that current use of right in intellectual discourse too. So it's it's things like. I don't know, like deconstruction is spread into uh, other kinds of thinking, right? Because it's, yeah, and you put it right in the middle sometimes or sometimes you put it on the end of the sentence. But either way, I think Rick's correct. You're inviting somebody to agree with you. And there's something patronizing about it too, I think, though, because it's sort of like you're saying, right, you, you must understand this as I do, right? Either that or if I'm wrong, you're going to stop me right now because I'm asking you if I'm right. We do have to take a break <laughs> right now because we have to have uh, some time for endorsements. So that's what we'll do. We'll break, we'll endorse. This is the point where Wolfie usually thanks everybody. Wolfie's not here today. Uh, Betsy Kaplan has been producing this show. Our executive producer, Katie Delarski, has been uh, running around making sure that uh, we aren't forgetting to do various things and helping out in other ways. Our intern, John Francois, has been on the phones. The part of Bill Curry was played by – who should that be today? Uh, shout out a name. The, the part of Bill Curry was played by – Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder. There you go. <laughs> it wasn't that hard. Uh, we do encourage you to go to our website, WNPR.org. The audio of the show will be up there very soon as, long as, as well as everything else WNPR has been doing all week long. also want to take this moment to encourage you to go to A, our fifth anniversary party on September 30th at the Infinity Hall in Hartford, the brand new facility there. Grayson Hugh uh, will be there, and I assume Polly Messer also as well, to sing the song that you'll hear at the end of today's show. You'll be there. You'll pay $5. You'll get a drink, and then you'll pay for your other drinks. You'll have some snacks, and then you'll start to feel hungry after that. Uh, but basically, you'll have a great time. You'll meet some of your favorite nose panelists there to be able to get you. We do need you to Reserve your ticket so we know you're coming. So uh, go to WNPR.org slash events uh, and you'll see all the information you need to reserve your place and pony up your big fat $5. Then the following night, we're going to have a really interesting conversation about education, uh, but just not about, about teaching and learning. Forget education policy. Watkinson School, we've got a fabulous panel. I'll be getting the word out about who's on that panel, but you're invited to Watkinson School. Go to Watkinson.org. This is part of the Freshly Squeezed series, which I curate there, uh, and uh, learn a little bit more about this. This is sort of about how to take all the policy and stress out of this conversation and get back to the question of, what if your only priority was teaching and learning? What would that be like? All right. So uh, those are my announcements. Uh, now it's time for endorsements. Carolyn, what are you going to endorse today? I am endorsing the uh, Hartford HodgePodge and Envision Fest, which both are tomorrow. Well, HodgePodge goes on uh, throughout the fall, I believe. But uh, Envision Fest is tomorrow in downtown Hartford. There's all sorts of cool uh, events, and it'll be fun, so I encourage you to go. I also am, this is sort of an anti-endorsement, but I am on a campaign to just stop all things pumpkin. 
I am pumpkin sick spice lattes. of pumpkin spice. They are, everything. they are the devil's uh, brew, I think. They are, yes. I agree with you about that. Um, it, it, so HodgePodge, by the way, is this uh, thing, this downtown Hartford thing on Saturdays, and it has all kinds of booths and tradespeople and some even some farmers and stuff too. I think Envision Fest is kind of an art. It's the, it's a terrible name for a festival. Envision Fest is just awful. Uh, it's like a machine came up with the name, but it's a really a great, a great thing in downtown Hartford. You're absolutely right, uh, Irene. On to you. Um, I'm just going to endorse uh, Tangier's rest, uh, store because they uh, move. Greek it's a people middle, sticking, yes, sticking Greek up for Greek people. food. Yeah, there's Middle Eastern Greek pita. They have giant vats of olives. They have baklava. They have com- prepared um, food. They have inc- deliciously fresh falafels. They've now moved to the former cheese and stuff, which is in the west end of Hartford. Um, and they and you can sit outside there now for a, a, on a couple of tables and it's just a deli- the people that are that run it are just a delightful group of brothers and it's wonderful. All right, Tangiers, what have you got, Rand? First two classic pop song fade outs from the sixties and seventies. You got to <laughs> listen to Marvin Gaye. What's going on? That's mm. like the party fade out. Mm. And then for the poignant fade out, Carol King on So Far Away. But I want to I want to uh, recommend two books that I read recently. One is Adam Begley's biography of John Updike. It'll be interest to, of interest to two classes of people. Those who already love and admire Updike, uh, and then those who are interested in how writers who do work from their own lives go about changing their lives into narrative. He he did it constantly and in, in interesting ways. The second book is uh, by a historian named Ronald Rossbottom, and it's called When Paris Went Dark, and it's a history of Paris under German occupation during World War II. And it's both it's a, a sort of psychological profile of the of the experience of being displaced in your own city, but it's full of interesting historical tidbits. He notes that Pablo Picasso, who was resident in Paris during the war and who subsequently liked to let it be known that he resisted the authorities whenever possible. It turns out the only time he got in any trouble at all was when he was fined for eating a steak on a meatless day. So it's full of historical <laughs> curiosities like that as well. When Paris went dark. I know that Picasso painting, Steak on a Meatless Day. Uh, <laughs> I think they have it at MoMA right now. All right, so uh, I will quickly endorse a couple of articles as well. I'll endorse um, the John Lahr profile of Al Pacino, which is like one issue of The New Yorker ago. Al Pacino is such a mystery. Uh, and, and I mean, when you read this, you realize how much of a mystery Al Pacino has always been to you. And it's a, it doesn't clear up all the mysteries. It almost amplifies them, but in a really fascinating way. And then an article I had to hide from Rand because he would have wanted to make it a topic today. Uh, it's an article in Slate magazine about uh, this revolutionary moment in the world of chess where uh, out of nowhere this uh, person has come to displace Magnus Carlsen, who's the reigning heartthrob, the one direction of, uh, of chess. Uh, it, it's a really interesting article. It's a long article for Slate, and it's, it's really interesting. It makes chess uh, very exciting. So all of that, uh, I'm leaving. Uh, say, email me, Colin, C-O-L-I-N at WNPR.org. Uh, email me your favorite restaurant or bar in Quebec City or Montreal, and we'll have great shows for you next week. You'll love them, even if you heard them once before. Here's Grace and Hugh. I think maybe we're ending with Grace and Hugh. Uh, if we're not, we're ending with something else. <laughs>